0: We're kind of more spread out here today, aren't we? What a beautiful day. I uh, got up this morning, saw the uh, 5 o'clock news and the weather report and thought, "Uh uh-oh. And uh, then a little while later, I looked at my weather on my phone and I thought, okay, we're going to be cold. And God has truly blessed us this morning, and with this, do you, do you smell that sweet, pleasing aroma yeah. taking place? Um, all I can say is, to God alone be glory. Uh, it, I can say it in Latin, soli deo gloria. I don't know it. Does anybody know it in Spanish? I do. Let's hear it. Gloria a Dios. Gloria a Dios. Yeah. All right. Um, amen. What a great morning, Um, and uh, I am really looking for, you can pray for my gluttony. I'm really looking for that food, (laughs) look forward to that food. But even more so, I'm looking forward to these, this just amazing uh, baptism, and uh, uh, with uh, just some amazing, godly young people. I'm just so excited. Uh, But to get us there, I wanna start us in Jonah chapter three. Now, I know we skipped around a little bit. We started in Jonah last, more than a month ago. (laughs) Because I had COVID, we had the Jaws theme, still have a little bit of a Jaws theme, um, and uh, it's, a, it's fun. We're going we're to finish up Jonah next month. We're, we're condensing a little bit, but uh, the themes will be the same. But today we'll be in Jonah chapter 3, because we're looking at the repentance of Nineveh. So why don't you turn with me to Jonah 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Our Heavenly Father, as we look at repentance and mercy in Jonah chapter 3 today, we pray that you would reveal to us your splendid goodness. As we see the response of Nineveh to the fear of God, let us rightly fear you. Speak your word to each of us this morning and reveal your holy character that we may be both convicted of our sin and drawn to your kindness. As we prepare to observe the gospel demonstrated through baptism, may we also crave your incredible mercy. May we be reminded that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and that God alone, you alone, can make us alive in Christ Jesus. And for those here who may still be dead in their trespasses, may you regenerate Revive and grant them life anew in Christ Jesus and we pray these things in his name. Amen Amen. Now during the the first great awakening Decades before even the American Revolution The Puritan Jonathan Edwards found himself preaching a sermon that he had preached before Edwards found himself in New England in a meeting house preaching a sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The sermon is so famous that you can go to christianbook.com or Amazon and order it in multiple formats. You can even probably find it online in its text. It's one of the most famous sermons ever preached. On this day, some report that Edwards may not have even been the planned speaker, but he began preaching in his usual dry monotone, manuscript, reading style. I'm not like that. I yell at you. I'm sorry. (laughs) While there was no style or flair or verbal eloquence, the words of this profound sermon penetrated the hearts of his hearers as he stated, frankly, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and tend downward with a great weight and pressure towards hell, and if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf." While Jonathan Edwards is sometimes unfairly characterized as a a fire and brimstone preacher, many of his sermons were actually dripping with hopefulness that we need not fear hell because of God's grace. This sermon, however, was saturated with candor concerning God's wrath and our helpless depravity. Toward the end of his sermon, he would appeal to the crowd, Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. But long before he could reach that point this day, the weeping and crying in that meeting house were so loud that his sermon had to be stopped. People were crying out, what must I do to be saved? Now in today's churches, there is great resistance to such dark and terrifying sermons. One pastor suggested that we ought to more preach that following Jesus will make your life better, and will make you better at life. Tell that to Polycarp. Tell that to the 11 apostles who are martyred for their faith. Or maybe the 12th one, John who was boiled in oil and then banished to an island of the most dangerous criminals. Another preacher preached, uh, pushed back against that idea uh, and, and used this illustration. He, he, w- he would say, if you're on an airplane and, and, and the, the flight attendant hands you a backpack and says, put this on, it's going to make your flight better. Eventually, that backpack's coming off because it's uncomfortable, doesn't make you feel better. It's not always the most convenient thing. But if you were handed the backpack and told that it contains a parachute, and you're told that at some point that plane is going down and the only thing that will save you will be to jump out of that airplane and pull that cord, you would probably be very unlikely to remove the backpack. In fact, you would cling to the harness As your only hope. Sometimes what people need is a dark warning. In the case of Jonah, that's exactly what God used to reach the people of Nineveh, one of the most violent and wicked cities in all of history. So to understand what's going on here, let's look at the context. This is the second time the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The second time he responded by getting up. But the first time he had gotten on a ship to go the opposite direction, towards Tarshish, which is the other end of the Mediterranean Sea, probably on the coast of Spain. It was the opposite direction he was supposed to go. You know, because you can outrun God in a wooden boat. God sends this great storm. It's threatening to capsize the ship while Jonah passes out in the hull the sailors panic they start yeeting all the expensive cargo off the ship now, you know what yeet means right to hurdly throw or launch something but it's a funnier word so that's what we're using so finally they run across Jonah who reveals that he's a Hebrew prophet fears fears the God of heaven who created everything and he tells them that they need to hurl him into the sea so they yeet Jonah too But Jonah didn't drown. Better. He was swallowed by a great sea creature. Now it could have been a whale, could have been some rare or extinct shark, maybe it was a giant grouper. You ever seen those? It's like a goldfish that could swallow a Great Dane, right? It's more terrifying than a shark, I guarantee it. We don't know the mechanics of it, but it makes very little scientific sense what happened. But there are some reports That have been questioned, that that this has happened other times. Fun fact you have a one in a trillion chance of being swallowed by a whale. You're more likely to win the lottery. You don't hear that often, do you? There's actually a lobster diver who just recently was swallowed by a humpback whale. He was in the whale's mouth for like 30 seconds before he got spit out. swallowed him for three days and then was able to tell about him. I wonder what the chances are of that. Right? There are a lot of theories, but we cannot dismiss this miracle without calling into question all of the other miracles in the Bible. This really happened. Jonah's in there three days, three nights. The sea creature vomits him up on the seashore somewhere along the eastern Mediterranean and speaks out to Jonah again. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3. It says in verse 1 and 2, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, Nineveh is a great city, both in size and scope. Very influential. And I think when God spoke the second time, Jonah recalled the events that had most recently transpired. So instead of running, he obeyed this time. Good decision. Verse 3, Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. The first time Jonah went the opposite direction. The second time he went the other direction toward Nineveh. He changed direction. His mind was changed. And that's what it means to repent. Now Jonah didn't have a car, so he had to walk at least 400 miles through a very rugged desert. And as you can imagine, he must have looked and smelled like something you don't want to be around. Nineveh is so big that it takes three days to get through it. That's about the same time it takes in a car to get through Temecula during a rush hour. But Jonah's on foot, so he's going faster than the cars in Temecula. It's a mechanism we call hyperbole. at present, our archaeology doesn't show Nineveh to be quite that big, but we're, we're probably talking about a much wider area that includes the suburbs of Nineveh. Now, in verse 4, it says this. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here we see Jonah pulling a Jonathan Edwards. Ninevites in the hang- hands of an angry God. Right? And based on what comes up in chapter 4, I'm imagining that Jonah probably delivered it very dry and boring like Jonathan Edwards did. uh, You know, because he didn't like Nineveh very much. One way or the other, Jonah uses God's word. Even if it was a poor use. Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. And this is the power of God's word. Some indeed, Paul says Yes, I will rejoice. God's God's word is powerful enough to overcome poor delivery or even a bad attitude. I think we're often afraid to share our faith with others because we're afraid that we're going to mess it up. We're going to say something wrong. You know, it's, it's interesting. Jesus said to go out and make disciples. But then when he sent his 12 disciples out in Matthew 10 and in Mark 6 and Luke 9, if the people didn't respond, what did he say? Just shake the dust off your feet and move on. Go to the next town. He says the same thing in Luke 10 when he sends 72 disciples out. And here's the reason. We are, not, we, we are responsible for obeying God. That's what we're responsible for. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts people of sin and draws them to God. He is the one responsible for the outcome. We don't have to put that on our own shoulders. We just need to obey. And listen, the Holy Spirit is way better at his job than I am. So we don't need to worry about the outcome. That's God's job. We're just called to obey God who tells us to get out there. Jonah didn't preach this come just as you are message. He preached a sinners in the hands of an angry God message. The the summary of Jonah's sermon is all we know here. He says, 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown you ever done that countdown thing with your kids? I'm going to count to three. <laughs> right? And we we all know what we're doing when we do it, right? We know that we're teaching delayed obedience. And we know that delayed obedience is disobedience. But we do it anyway because we can't help giving them more grace than we ought to sometimes. It almost feels like God's doing that here, huh? Amen. I'm going to give you to the count of 40 days. <laughs> Because he's way, way more patient than we are. There's a principle in the book of Numbers. Your sin will find you out. That one stings. Interesting story. My, my daughter, Lene, is now in the youth ministry. And I was a youth leader and a youth pastor for a lot of years. And, and so I was kind of excited to see my daughter move up into youth ministry. And then a terrifying thought occurred to me. I realized that when I served in youth ministry as a youth pastor, I knew all the secrets of all the kids' families. I had the senior pastor's son in my youth group, and I was candidly aware of the senior pastor's driving habits. You have to watch out. Your teens will throw you under the bus for a Klondike bar. So I I told myself, that when I'm the pastor, and I have kids, I need to watch my P's and Q's. And I forgot that message, that I should have preached to myself more often. So the only thing I can say is that I'm not always sure that you can believe everything you're told. Uh, I'm just kidding. Lene is an awesome girl. I'm super proud of, of the young lady she's becoming. And If she tells you something embarrassing about me, she's grounded, because and, 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 it's probably true your sin will find you out (laughs) the people of Nineveh responded they responded to Jonah's hellfire and brimstone sermon says in verse 5 the people of Nineveh believed God they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them see they did something better than just come as you are they immediately repented of who they were they fasted. They put on sackcloth. There was a deep change. It wasn't a quick prayer before they got on with the rest of their day. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthian church about their repentance. He says this in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 11. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through. Through us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. You see, the the people in Nineveh, they went from deep reverie to deep sorrow and shame. The entire trajectory of their lives changed in an instant. But they didn't do this because they believed the preacher. I mean, his appearance and smell may may have contributed to how they seriously they may have taken him. But in the end, the Bible tells us here that they believed God. And i want to ask each of us here this morning do you believe god not asking what books you read what music you listen to what's in your fridge what's in your garage i'm not asking your worldview i'm not asking who you voted for did you get the vaccine what news channel do you watch i don't care if you believe rachel rachel maddow or carson tucker (laughs) <laughs> Not even your f- favorite celebrity pe- preacher—is it John Piper, Chuck Smith, R.C. Sproul, Jack Hibbs? Which one do you trust most? Most. Listen. The real question is: Do you believe God? Yes. 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 So the story got to the king, the guy in charge. This is what happens: verses six through nine in Jonah chapter three. Verses six through nine. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This was a sign of grief that they would use. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. I want you to notice something. The change was not from the top down. It was from the bottom up. Sure, We're told that the grieving of the common people was least to greatest, but that's just speaking of all of them, right? The common people repented first. They grieved their sin first. And and, and this wasn't even a a democratic society, right? Every Tuesday uh, morning at 10 a.m., a group of us meet at the church to pray, and, and you're all welcome to do that. One of the first things that we pray for is our nation. And many of us will also uh, uh, repent of our national sins on behalf of our fellow Americans. We're all aware that although we have many laws that promote injustices and wickedness, our leaders were elected. They are a reflection of the people in this country. So I don't have a problem if a Christian wants to get involved in the political process or any of that, but we have to remember That true national repentance is going to be when the people turn from sin and corruption. If we want change, we need to change. And this is what happened in Nineveh. The people repented. The king then repented. And then he took it a step further and added ashes to the sackcloth. Think about the implications of this. The king of Assyria. I think only the Roman Empire could come close to their brutal mistreatment of people. There was a deep change in the king. There's no true repentance apart from change. The people changed. The government changed. And the whole system followed. Everything in Nineveh came to a grinding halt to do one thing. Call out to God. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. And to this point, violence had been the identity of Nineveh. But their entire identity changed. The interesting thing is that if you look at verse 9, they didn't even know if God would relent. They surrendered to God anyway. Why? Because they believed him. You believe God is your faith contingent on God's blessing, or do you serve God because you trust Him? Trusting God doesn't mean that you're not going to have to suffer earthly consequences or troubles in your life. It means that you recognize that who God you recognize rather who God is, and are trusting Him for your eternal state. Paul in Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians actually compares our relationship with God to Him. As being our adopted father. That Christ is his only begotten and we get to participate in his eternal inheritance. In fact the word translated adoption means the place in the condition of the son and in that culture the son was the preeminent heir. And in the same uh, passage in, in Galatians right before it it talks about there is no more male nor female nor Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free row one in christ jesus let's look at romans 8 romans eight fifteen. for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and of children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're co-heirs with Christ. What is Christ's inheritance? Everything. We've adopted four of our children, Denise and I have. And when they were adopted, they received a new birth certificate, a new social security number, a new home, even a new name. When you repent and place your trust in Jesus, you receive a whole new identity. We don't repent because it will make our lives on earth so much better. We repent because we're wrong and he's right. Mm -hmm. Now, we may receive better things. I mean, obviously the ethics and the, the morals in the Bible certainly do help us to live better lives. I'm not dismissing that at all. Romans 10. I'm I'm sorry, Romans 3. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even Then Paul continues in verse 23. He says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. There are no exceptions. We cannot serve God to appease him. We could never appease God on our own. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He died for our sins. To appease the wrath of God. He took our place. That is why we say of those who trust Jesus that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. According to the scriptures alone, to God alone be the glory. Amen. I must worship not because of what he did, but who he is. We give thanks and praise for his goodness. That's part of worship. We praise Him for what He did. But we worship. Our overall worship is because He is the everlasting, holy God, and we are utterly worthy, unworthy to stand before Him. And so, in verse 10 of Jonah chapter 3, it says this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it we call that grace we call that mercy you know that word relent it's actually from the Hebrew word that we often translate repent and in fact the NRSV the, the New Revised Standard Version actually says God changed his mind don't think that that's the best translation because God doesn't change he says in Micah 3.6, For I the Lord do not change. In Hebrews 13.8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how can God change his mind if he doesn't change? And I want to share with you there's a temptation to see this as God simply responding to humans in order to determine his will. But let's read the context here it wasn't going to go any differently one way or the other for Nineveh, right? God went so far as to take a prophet so silly as to think he could run and get him yeeted into the sea where God would use a big sea animal to swallow him, where God would preserve him, take him back to where he started or nearby there, and dare him to run again. This wasn't going to go any other way. He changed Jonah's mind. He changed the minds of the Ninevites. God relented because he had determined to relent from pouring out his wrath on Nineveh before sin ever even entered the world. None of this took God by surprise. This is about God's goodness. He is not obligated to save. He owes no man or woman yet a single breath, but He is patient. He is long-suffering and kind. And it's His kindness that draws us to repentance. He gives, He restores, He saves, not because of anything we have done, but because He loves us. He is holy and we are unworthy. He is righteous, we are broken and corrupted. He has placed our corruption, brokenness and unworthiness upon the beautiful nail-scarred hands of Jesus and has applied his holiness, the holiness of Jesus to us. We cannot persuade God to spare us from his righteous wrath that we all deserve. We cannot persuade him because he's already done it. And because God has already done that work, we can participate in all the promises of salvation and a personal, loving relationship with the creator of the universe. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We call baptism a visible sign of an invisible grace. What that means is that what we do here is something that represents what has happened internally in a person, in the heart of one being baptized. But baptism is also very sacred. I would rather talk someone out of being baptized than into it. Let me explain why. Throughout the New Testament, people who come to faith in Jesus are told to be baptized. Acts 2.38 says this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But see, that doesn't mean that it's the baptism that saves. Jesus saves. We respond to Jesus by repenting and getting baptized. And we do that by faith. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. To repent is to change directions. And baptism is also something that you do. Now, repentance is unique because we're told in 2 Timothy that God's the one that grants it. So so it's certainly a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in someone in that respect. So, But baptism, how do we see that? Let's think about it for a minute. Our culture is a culture of freedom and options, right? We see every choice as optional. But what we often fail to recognize is that some things are not as optional as they seem. The early Christian would never have considered that someone could surrender to Christ and then refuse the commandment to be baptized. It would, ma- it would have made no sense to them. The definition of repentance when it comes to Christianity is to turn from sin, but also to turn to Christ. This justification, or the the initial and final saving, is a result of God's grace through faith, which repentance is a part of. So the saving is internal, but how can you have an internal change without the external following? The apostles and early Christians would not have been able to wrap their minds around the possibility of an internal faith without an external response. To disconnect the two would be a heresy that we call dualism, and it's rooted in ancient Gnostic cults. The Jewish Christians would have little trouble understanding their faith because Jesus is the Messiah and he was prophesied... Uh, Before and And he's who they were looking for. So as soon as they had a couple little things fixed in their theology, they would have understood. But then as Christianity spread into the rest of the world in the first and second centuries, the foundations of the Christian faith would have to be taught so that the people would understand who God is in light of their sin and his glory. They also saw things like communion as being so sacred that they wanted to be careful not to to serve it to someone who is not a sincere Christian. But God only knows the heart, right? We can't judge that. So they had to rely on something else to make a determination and be safe. So what they did is, the way the church service would often work is that everyone would gather, and then those that hadn't been baptized uh, were, they were there to learn and to grow in their faith and their knowledge. They were called catechumen because they were being catechized or instructed in the faith. So they would do some singing and reading and teaching. Uh, but then everyone except for the baptized Christians would be dismissed. And then the baptized Christians would participate in uh, communion and some of the other things that they considered to be sacred. Now, when these catechumen were ready to be baptized, they had to demonstrate that they knew enough, that they knew enough for the other Christians uh, to be comfortable that they understood what they were getting into, that they understood the Christian faith, uh, their relationship with Jesus, and, and, and what baptism actually means. Initially it was called the rule of faith or the measurement of faith. Eventually that coalesced into what we call today the Apostles' Creed. It's a beautiful summary of the core biblical foundations of our beliefs. In fact, it, it was actually considered at the time a baptismal creed. Before I read it to you, I want to say that there's a word I want to explain first, and it's the word Catholic. Um, and that's we spell that with a lowercase c because it's not in reference to the Roman Catholic Church that, that falls under the authority of the pope but it's in reference to all christians everywhere all the time it's what catholic means um when we say catholic what we mean is we're speaking about all those who are god's elect who have repented repented of their sins who've placed their faith in jesus so that can include baptists and presbyterians and methodists and anglicans and non-denominational christians even uh, some, of the, some of the more traditional uh, Roman Catholics and Coptics, those who truly have repented and placed their trust in Jesus. Any other true believers in the universal Christian church? It's been suggested that we would change it, the word to universal, but there are universal universalists, and we don't want to be confused there either. So we've retained the word. So also... The word Catholic is beautiful because it just it has that implication of the unity that we have with all true believers everywhere throughout the ages. So don't get thrown out by that, thrown off by the word. Uh, It's just means all Christians everywhere all the time. Um, Some of you know this creed, so feel free to recite it along with me. This is the Apostles Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. This is a baptismal confession. And you're going to hear that as each of our blessed Christians are being baptized. Each of those being baptized today were reminded of the consequences of baptism in the early church. By being baptized, we are expressing that our faith is in Christ alone and publicly renouncing all other faiths and worldviews. By doing so, in the early church, they were marking themselves for persecution and martyrdom. Nobody would make such a serious confession unless they truly believed. So I warned each of these being baptized today to examine their faith and not to get in the water if they would not be willing to get out of the water and face what the early Christians did. Each of them has confessed that they would face whatever consequences they may face in life for this public confession. We are about to participate in one of the two most sacred acts given to us by our Lord Jesus. Allow me to ask you to consider if you would place your faith in Jesus' Meditate on the words of this confession. If you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, then after the service, after the baptism, see myself, see one of our elders, uh, if you know them, or Clint, who leads worship here, or talk to the person who invited you. So will you pray with me? as we prepare to observe the grace of God through baptism. Oh Lord God, help us to both rightly fear and rightly cling to you. Help us to live lives of repentance. Let our daily confession grow and become more deeply rooted in our lives. Help us, O Lord, to repent daily and to offer our faithful obedience to you. God, we thank you that you are just. And we doubly thank you that you turned your your righteous and your just wrath from us and on to your only begotten. And that you have applied his holiness to those of us who have repented. God, we pray now for these who are about to confess before the world their faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. We pray that their hearts are sincere, that you will give them strength to endure all that you have called them to for the sake of Jesus. Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord Jesus, send your spirit upon each of them that they may truly know that this is as one of the highest and most sacred moments in their eternal existence. All of this we ask in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, solely day of glory. Amen.